Hello friends, my name is Brenna. And I'm Danny. And, and this, this is Lago, Lago Stories. Stories. Today's episode contains graphic information that some listeners may find disturbing. Listeners' discretion is advised. Welcome back, you guys. Episode 6. I hope everyone is having a spectacular Monday, and I want to say thank you so much for all of your support you've shown us so far. Yeah, definitely sending you guys all those good vibes for Monday. We know you need them. We need them as well. And we are so appreciative as we grow and learn this crazy podcast world that you guys are growing with us and showing us lots of love. So we really, really appreciate it. As this month is May, we're going to continue on the theme of mental health awareness and keeping that open and candid conversation about it so that way if you or someone you know is struggling with it and just kind of helping one person will make a difference for all of us. We want to make sure that what we're putting out there and how we're promoting our brand is going forward with things like being open and Candid. Candid. Good word. <laughs> but with mental health and making it less stigmatized. Absolutely. And in my last episode, which was episode four, I was telling you about the Linden Lake School and the horrendous murder and aftermath of Tina Mott. As promised, I wanted to tell you about this case, which was located on the same street as the home that Tina was murdered. Again, the crimes are in no way connected other than in proximity, but I did think it was a crazy coincidence, so let's get into it. Let's go. But before I do, I want to let everyone know that on top of the gruesome details of crime scenes and murder, today's story also contains talk about suicide. If you feel this may trigger you in any way, please stop here or I will provide a warning before I mention this in detail, so you may skip ahead. Now, I also want to add that while doing the in-depth research for this case, I did see some conflicting information regarding James Rupert's date of birth and a small difference in the time sequence of the murders. I tried to piece this together as well as I could from the most reliable sources I could find. I just wanted to throw that out there in case any of you were sneaky and researched this case beforehand as after I mentioned it in episode four or were already familiar with this case. Okay, now let's get into it. Yes, girl, let's go. (laughs) It was Easter Sunday, March 30th, 1975 in Hamilton, Ohio, where James Rupert would murder 11 members of his family, seemingly without much warning as well. James Urban Rupert was born April 12th in 1934 and had one older brother. Like so many other violent offenders that had difficult and abusive childhoods, Rupert's was unfortunately no different. It is said that his mother, Charity, referred to James as a mistake, and after James was born, she always complained that she wanted him to be a girl. James grew up knowing all of this as it was spoken towards him and around him. His father, Leonard, a violent man, was also known to have a quick temper and made little effort to acknowledge or spend time with James and his older brother, Leonard Jr. So, I did want to jump in here. I just want to clarify, his mom's name is Charity? That's correct. Okay. I was also recently listening to a podcast on serial killers' childhood before they kind of conduct all their acts, and I just wanted to note that, like, 
well over 90% have abusive childhood and it's extremely rare to have someone that has a quote unquote normal childhood to grow up to be a serial killer. So I think that's like really great that you mentioned that because it does play a factor. Oh yeah. And I'm always curious, like the first thing I look into when I hear about like a gruesome case is what was their childhood like? Yeah. How were their parents? What was their relationship with their parents and their siblings? Exactly. In 1947, Leonard Sr. passed away. Leonard Jr. was 14 years old and James was 12 at the time of their father's death. Quickly, Leonard Jr. would become the head of household. And according to James, his brother would pick on him frequently. It is said that James did not do well in school as he did not have good grades and very little friends. James was also smaller in stature and would grow up to only be 5'6 and weigh 135 pounds as an adult. And that's not to body shame anybody here, okay? But I just want to let it know that he is very small. He has this persona of like a small guy who, yeah, he would get bullied, but kind of polite and quiet. Okay. And I did want to see, is it just the two of them? The two children, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, I, I kind of thought that as well. Like, there's only two of them, and it's, you know, back in, like, the 30s and the 40s. But, mm-hmm. yeah, just the two. Now, here is where I will mention suicide, so please skip ahead to the eight-minute mark if you feel you may be triggered. The study I have linked in the description box below is also extremely graphic, so please be advised. When James was 16 years old, he was so unhappy that he attempted to hang himself with a bed sheet. According to the study, quote, trends of suicide in the United States during the 20th century, end quote, the suicide rate for 1950s was 11.4 per 100,000 people. The third highest cause of suicide was by hanging right after poisoning, and the data shows that males disproportionately outweighed female deaths. Again, out of 100,000 people, the rate of suicide for males was 17.3, whereas females were 4.9. One of the risk factors for suicide in youth is, quote, interpersonal conflict with a lack of family support, end quote. Now, I am no expert by any means, but I can definitely see how James was struggling and had very little family support. Even though we know that later on in life, James will commit heinous acts on his innocent family members, I can't help but wonder what if any change would have occurred with James if he received the help that he so desperately needed. Yeah, I think right now, especially in the time period we're living in with everything that's so uncertain and what's going on, I think it's really important to kind of have the conversations that are hard, but it could honestly save someone's life because, I mean, if he had gone all the way through with this, if there was somebody that he could have talked to or something like that that could have helped. I think it's important to know that it's okay to not be okay. You just need to make sure you're taking the steps to become okay again. Like no one is going to be 100% themselves every single day. And I think knowing that and being able to kind of be aware of that and have open conversations with people really helps kind of take some of the stigma away from suicide and kind of put those people that are contemplating those thoughts in a spot where they can seek help instead of being afraid to share that experience with others. Absolutely. They, they can see more than just how they're feeling now because mm-hmm. I think that's a really big struggle when you're stuck in that dark place. It's hard to see anywhere past 
that that tunnel. Yeah, exactly. As James grew up, his relationship with his brother continued to worsen. By college, James had dropped out of school after two years while Lennard Jr. excelled in sports and graduated with a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering. On top of this, Lennard Jr. actually married one of James's few girlfriends he had in life, and they would have eight children together by the time of the murders. So, are you telling me that his brother mm-hmm. married one of his ex-girlfriends? Yes. Oh my god. One of the few girlfriends he had. Yes. Yeah, so talk about a me. yeah, talk about a, a hasty relationship he and his brother had. Mm-hmm. Now by the time James was an adult, he found himself still living at home with his mother, unemployed, and owning large sums of money to his brother after he lost his money to the stock market in nineteen seventy three. It is said that his mother Charity had also threatened to evict him shortly before the murders as well. Huh, that's kind of ironic. Yes. On March 29th, 1975, the day before the murders, witnesses recall seeing James shooting tin cans along the banks of the Great Miami River in Hamilton. James was a gun enthusiast, precise marksman, owned several guns, and was a recreational shooter. Wanda Bishop, an employee of the 19th Hole Cocktail Lounge, recalls talking to James later that same night when he came into the bar to drink. This was a common occurrence for James, so his present wasn't all that unusual, but his behavior that night was. Wanda stated that he seemed depressed and was talking about needing to, quote, solve a problem, end quote, after explaining how his mother had been nagging him incessantly and threatening to evict him. He left the bar at 11 p.m., but later returned. Wanda asked James if he had solved his problem, and he said, quote, no, not yet. End quote, and stayed at the bar drinking until closing, which was around 2.30 a.m. Now, I don't know about you, but this seems like the wheels had been turning in James's head before the murders, however vague this statement was, but what do I know? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Like, was this premeditated or kind of did he just snap and everything fell into place that happened? Yeah, so, and that's another kind of debate, um... We'll wait until, you know, the trial, but I I definitely had a, a premeditated notion in my head for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially what we did get from their conversation at the bar. Like, I didn't solve it yet. Uh, yeah. Solve what? <laughs> yeah. And he had gone on and on about how his mom was, you know, annoying him and going to kick him out and he needed to solve this problem, like, as yeah. soon as possible. Exactly. So... March 30th, Easter Sunday, Leonard Jr. and his wife Alma brought their eight kids to spend Easter with their grandma Charity and their uncle Jimmy, which is what they called James. Still upstairs, James slept off his long night of drinking while the kids hunted for Easter eggs in the front yard. Around 4 p.m., James woke up and recalled hearing his family downstairs and the smell of sloppy joes. The kids were in the living room playing and eating with their prized possessions, while Charity, Lennard Jr., and Alma were in the kitchen preparing food. Earlier in the day, the children had spent time with their mother's side of the family, so this wasn't a formal Easter dinner they had planned. I think it's interesting that he notes the smell of Sloppy Joe's. Yes. Like, that's so random. Yeah, and that was pretty much in, again, I had some conflicting information, but the Sloppy Joe's was in every one of them, so. Yeah, I feel like when we are doing the research for these cases i find it interesting on some of the stuff that they like 
definitely recall and then other things like completely black out major portions of something Mm -hmm. that you would feel like they should remember yeah exactly at 5 p.m james walked downstairs to visit with his nieces nephews brother and sister-in-law the adults were chatting about politics and the stock market when the conversation took a sour turn when lenard jr asked james quote how's the volkswagen end quote James glanced at his brother, then marched back upstairs angrily. He then loaded four guns and prepared for a massacre. Uh, can we backtrack? Like, what about the Volkswagen would upset him this badly? So I had to do quite some digging on this Volkswagen because, honestly, I was, like, typing it up and I was like, we don't know anything about the Volkswagen. (laughs) And I found found out later. So um, let me tell you about the Volkswagen. So we would later find out why this simple question angered James so much so to kill all 11 members of his family that day. According to a psychiatrist at the trial, James was convinced that his brother had been purposely sabotaging his Volkswagen. Anything from broken windshield wipers or a loose bumper to a destroyed carburetor. Now we don't know if Lenard was actually causing the damages to James's car and well, We'll never actually know, but the one thing we do know is that James believed that his brother was the cause of all of his recent car issues, and this had brought him back to the hasty relationship they had as children. Oh, wow. That's that's intense. Yeah, so I mean, kind of put it in perspective, you know, everything's going wrong with James's life, what he feels, you know. Mm-hmm. He's unemployed, he has a lot of debt that he owns to his brother, which is already a sour relationship, and now he thinks his brother is ruining his car, which would be the one thing to kind of get him back on his feet, so. Yeah. Now around 6 p.m., James stepped into the kitchen with a 357 Magnum in one hand and a 22 pistol on the other and began shooting. He shot his brother, Leonard, first. He then shot his sister-in-law and then his mother. Three of the children, Anne, David, and Teresa, that had also made their way into the kitchen shortly after James stammered upstairs, were shot down as well. Uncle Jimmy then made his way into the living room and shot all of the remaining children, Leonard III, Michael, Tommy, Carol, and John. The shooting took less than five minutes in total. James then waited three hours to call the police to report, quote, there's been a shooting, end quote. He waited outside, still dressed in his Easter best, except for with blood spatter from head to toe. When police arrived, they were shocked because this wasn't just a shooting, it was a massacre. The victims oldest to youngest were Charity, 65, Leonard Jr., 42, Alma, 38, Leonard III, 17, Michael, 16, Thomas, 15, Carol, 13, Anne, 12, David, 11, Teresa, 9, and John, who was 4. Wow, I got goosebumps as you were reading that. It's just really shocking to hear that the shooting took less than 5 minutes. That really took me back. It was like killing 11 people in less than 5 minutes. That's wow your family no less exactly and like the people you're supposed to like love and cherish the most and especially when you're reading out like the names and ages like from 65 to 4 like oh my yeah and i i really wanted to include you know every single name they were 
victims of this terrible tragedy from from Uncle Jimmy and you know their brother and sister-in-law so um yeah I, I made it a point to read out all of their names however winded I became but yeah I thought it was really important yeah, to, for sure. to share their names It is said that as police walked through the carnage, they found it difficult to not step on limbs or torsos in the small kitchen since the kitchen was littered with the victims. There was actually so much blood that it soaked through the floorboards into the basement where some blood stains will remain visible to this day. We will later find out that James had shot a total of 35 rounds in all and all but one victim would be shot in the head. It is theorized that James had shot each family member once, then went back around to each victim and shot again to make sure that they were deceased, as there wasn't any proof that the children were barricaded inside or that there was much of a struggle. They simply just did not have time to get out before Uncle Jimmy shot them down in cold blood. So it sounds like after he got enraged, he just like went up and started shooting immediately after they got the gun. So they didn't even have time to react. It was just, exactly. he came down, started shooting, and then it was just like so much shock that no one had time to do anything. Exactly. And I also did, now again, I mentioned like the inconsistencies. I did find one article and I left it out because every other article kind of gave the layout in this way but there was one that said that he had come down the stairs with the guns and then Leonard asked him about the Volkswagen so he he already had his guns in hand and had said like oh he's going off to go shooting tin cans you know on Easter oh, okay. and he had already had the guns in hand and just started shooting but Again, I don't know exactly which is the actual truth, but the most popular account was that the question was asked, he stammered back upstairs, loaded the guns, and then came back down. Wow. Yeah. And I did send you a picture of the rough crime scene. It's a not truthful crime scene, but just kind of like the layouts of where everybody was and the situation. Did you want to share anything about that? Yeah, it definitely puts into light what you were saying about the police officers not really having much room to not damage the crime scene. The kitchen is very crowded. It looks like two children and four adults in the kitchen all kind of, there's an island in the middle, like a typical kitchen has that small little island and they're kind of just scattered around it. And then in the living room, it looks like one child and then four older adults. And, I mean, it's just, they're all, it looks like it it would be a family hanging out and then... Just now lying down. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know exactly what James did in the three hours after the murders, but police noted that everything seemed to be perfectly placed around the house and there was no evidence that Rupert attempted to flee. James Rupert was charged the same day on 11 counts of aggravated homicide. While police were pleading for a confession, James refused to talk. Police noted that James would be able to earn $300,000 from inheritance if Rupert was found not guilty by reason of insanity, which was exactly his plan. Meanwhile, at the Rupert's Catholic Church, all 11 caskets were neatly lined wall-to-wall in a devastating funeral service. 
In the small town of Hamilton, Ohio, locals were all completely baffled that this crime took place and everyone was following the heinous crimes in the media. So I was really going to ask about why he just stood there or whatever he did in those three hours and was still there was the one that made the call. But I guess it kind of makes more sense now that he's trying to go for reason of insanity. It would be really interesting to know, not that we'll ever know, but what he did within those three hours and kind of piece that together. Because I feel like that's a, a large chunk of time to just sit there and stare at 11 bodies on the ground. Yeah. But, I mean, it's also not normal what he was doing so <laughs> exactly yeah i mean i hope he wasn't chilling and just like lounging on the couch but yeah like you said we'll never know and the reason why those blood splatters are still in the house on the baseboards is because he let the bodies just sit there and yeah i thought out. it was also really interesting when you said not only did he shoot everybody one time but he went around again to make sure they were dead and shot them again yeah So, and that also is, like, how, I don't know, I don't know much about, like, the insanity defense or anything like that, but that would seem like it was purposeful more Mm -hmm. than, you know, just, oh, I shot out of anger. Exactly. No, you went around again. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like insanity is more of, like, going through and just shooting everybody, getting out of the house, kind of going off, Mm -hmm. not knowing what's going on. Kind of, like, blacking out. Yeah, like, he not only took the time to kill everybody, but went around again to shoot them and then sat there and waited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because the death penalty was not active in Ohio during 1975, James Rupert was convicted of 11 counts of first-degree murder and was sentenced to 11 consecutive life sentences by a panel of three judges. James appealed the conviction and claimed he would not have received a fair trial in his hometown. The judge reviewing this appeal agreed, and he was given a new trial. During his second trial, which took place 125 miles north of Hamilton, a second panel of judges found Rupert guilty of two counts of murder for his mother and brother, but was acquitted on the other nine murders based on insanity. The sentence was the same, though, life in prison. Over the years, Rupert has been denied at all of his parole hearings, but his next parole hearing is scheduled for 2025, I'm pretty confident that he will also be denied if he makes it that long since he's now in his late 80s. Yeah, I'm actually really shocked that they granted him a new trial. There's a lot of things within his trial that would be damaging to his case, but it also, it's pretty clear what you did, dude. Yeah. So I am really shocked at that, but what I don't understand is like, okay, you were sane to kill two people, but insane to kill the other nine. It's not like these were split up. It's not like they were done separately. So I don't get, understand that. Yeah, and I did see something that said his new defense lawyer had spent money out of his own pocket to pay for psychologists to kind of testify at the second trial like over and over and over again and kind of just go through like his mental state. And I that also didn't make sense to me is like, Okay, I guess you could say I was only mad at my mother and my brother, but since I had already shot them, I just saw people and started shooting. But yeah, everybody else that's was only just thing. there. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it was just not a reflex, but just I don't know. Yeah, it on. would be really interesting to kind of hear their thought process behind that because I don't know how that works. I don't know how that 
even make sense in my opinion. Yeah. But I mean, obviously there's a whole piece that I'm not seeing, so. Well, and again, I don't know much about the insanity defense, but from what I thought, I thought it was just if you didn't know what your actions were during that time, Mm -hmm. which it seemed like he did because he shot them all except for one in the head. Yeah. It's like you were taking aim. Yeah. Yeah. doesn't make sense to me. But now for the home where the massacre took place, it is still standing. And it's become an unofficial attraction for school kids or paranormal investigators looking to get in. As of now, none of the previous homeowners have allowed tours or film crew inside, but that doesn't stop people from trying. In an article by Maxim Alter for a local newspaper in 2014, the current owner was interviewed about how she felt about the home's history. Owner Cinnamon Baker bought the house in 2008 and explained she hasn't experienced anything abnormal or unusual. And for the visible bloodstains in the floorboards I mentioned earlier, Baker isn't phased by it. She says that the home is like any other home that has history and, quote, this one just happened to have a history everyone knew about, end quote. So this person's name is Cinnamon Baker. I just want to clarify. <laughs> yes, yes. So um, that is the name she used in the article. I, I, I didn't check up on her, you know, birth certificate or anything, but Cinnamon Baker. She wasn't baking. It was Cinnamon Baker. Okay. <laughs> now, I can only imagine how difficult it would be to sell a home with a history like that, but it seems like the past few owners have really embraced the history in the most respectful way possible. And I really hope that it never becomes a glorified murder house attraction. Both homes, Tina Mott's and the Rupert's family addresses are widely available with a quick Google search. But if you ever find yourself in Hamilton, Ohio, please don't knock on their doors and search a blood or bullet holes, which many people have done, by the way. Personally, I don't think I could live in a home where a violent crime has taken place. But what do you think, Danny? I don't know. I go back and forth because it's... I'm, I'm big, like, just because that happened to them doesn't mean it's going to happen to you or something like that. But that's, this was brutal. And it's, like, yeah. being able to see that, that's, like, I know it doesn't happen to you, but I'm sure that has to have some sort of mental toll on you, like, seeing that every day. Absolutely. And I think it all depends on, like, how it feels, not to sound, like, flashy or something, but, like, I feel like it's all about the energy of the space. Mm-hmm. You know, like, if you can feel... A heaviness then I think it would be really really hard also I'm definitely the type of person that if I hear something I'm like somebody's breaking in or like yeah. I'm very paranoid so I think for me knowing about that history the first thing I would think about is like ghost even though again yeah. never seen a ghost or anything like that yeah I feel like that's a really good like if I was there and I felt okay and safe in that space then like I mean I feel like any home buying or wherever you're gonna live it's about how you feel while you were there yeah so I think that would just go to this as well like if I felt okay and safe in this space then let's go forward and get after it but any bad juju my way, I'm out. <laughs> Absolutely. And actually, fun fact is um, Cinnamon, when she had first, you know, signed the contract and everything, she didn't know about the history until somebody mentioned, like, hey, have you ever heard of James Rupert? And she was like, it sounds familiar. And she Googled it. And literally, the, the first thing that comes up is the address, oh, which wow. I didn't want to, like, keep saying, you know. <laughs> but she was like, oh, my gosh, like, let me go back and 
see how I feel. And she said, you know, she didn't feel any different. She didn't feel this heaviness. And so she just decided to to keep going. Well, I feel like especially in that situation, if she didn't know and then really wanted to go forward before, I don't know if after finding something out like that, if I would change my decision too, it's because it's like you've already you've already gone that made this far. your home, like this you're planning. Is, and yes, exactly. where is the couch gonna go? So I feel like that's different than walking in like, oh, and by the way, eleven people were murdered by a family member here. Yeah, and so I don't I don't know if this is just state law, Ohio state law, or just at the time, but the realtor didn't have to disclose unless she asked. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. So Might I thought add that, that was... to the checklist of all the house Exactly, right? Just like any house. Oh yeah, there? by the way, did anyone die? Yeah. Well, you know our opinions on living in a home where a violent crime has taken place, but what do you think? Are you paranoid like me or would you be absolutely fine living in a home with history everyone knew? Also, do you think this massacre was premeditated? I, I'm kind of leaning toward yes. But... Girl, I'm yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Should we have yeah, a Yeah, as we know more, I can't I can't say without a clear conscience that he, it wasn't premeditated. Like, you had a conversation with the bartender, you went, like, maybe the trigger of when it was going to happen could have been, but, like, at some mm-hmm. point you did know you were going to do that to your family members. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it would make a little bit more sense if he hadn't had the conversation. Well, granted, we're taking, like, the witness statement for truth again Mm -hmm. right so that is a variable but if the other version of events where he had gone upstairs had the guns I don't think he would have loaded them though if he was going to just go do some recreational shooting so that's why I was kind of like I don't really believe that story but if that was the actual truth I can see a little bit more of the insanity and not premeditated but that's only if also the witnesses lying as yeah well. i feel like those little tidbits of information that we probably will never figure out or find out are what would make this premeditated or not absolutely well let us know your thoughts on instagram and facebook at lago stories and while you're there don't forget to follow us if you haven't already if you have a case suggestion please reach out through our website at lagostories.net all of today's source material will be linked in the description box below With that, I will conclude today's episode. We'll be back with a new episode in a couple weeks, but until then, stay safe out there. It's a weird world. Thank you to Alexander Nakarada for allowing us to use his sound, Nightmare, for theme music.